0: Well, the day of the Lord is a day that was prophesied a terrifying day, a terrifying day that was going to come upon the world. It's a time of such overwhelming judgment upon the earth. It's going to be a time of plagues, a time of tribulation, a time of war, and such that we have never seen or will ever see in the history of this world again events that are going to occur during the day of the Lord, sometimes that is also known as the day of Jacob's trouble or the great tribulation period. It, it's coming, but it shouldn't necessarily frighten all of us who are awaiting the coming of Jesus Christ because we are not going to be around to experience it. And so this passage here is for our instruction, it's for our encouragement, it's An encouragement to all who have repented of their sin and are trusting in the gospel of Jesus Christ, but it is also, on the flip side, it is a terrifying warning to those who have not put their trust in Jesus Christ. Over vacation, I was able to get some time to read and kind of catch up on some magazines, Christian magazines that I hadn't had a chance to flip through And I came across an article. It's a really shocking article, actually, in Christianity Today. And they did a survey of, of contemporary Christianity throughout America. And they found some pretty interesting things regarding the second coming of Jesus Christ and our belief about its imminent possible, you know, within our own lifetime. They also compared Muslims who also, incidentally, believe that Jesus is coming again. Now, this may seem, on its surface, incredibly shocking, but apparently, I, I, I have a you know, kind of a general understanding of Muslim theology, but I don't know, a, a, I'm not in tune with all the minute details, so it was revelationary rev, to me that they actually believe that Jesus is coming again. In fact, the Quran teaches that he will be accompanied by a figure by the name of Mehdi. and. He will come with Jesus, and Jesus will be a witness, according to them, against Christians who claim that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is said in the Koran to come down to earth. He's going to kill the pigs, break the crosses, perform a pilgrimage to Mecca, defeat the Christians in Rome, and kill the Antichrist, who in their minds is the Pope, and usher in a worldwide peace of Muslim prosperity. Now, aside from the obvious plagiarism that's going on in that, what's even perhaps maybe even more shocking that I learned from this article was that Muslims in the Middle East believe that Jesus will return in their lifetime more so than Christians in America. In fact, get this, there are 60% of Muslims in the Middle East that believe that Jesus is coming again and could have come in their own lifetime. Whereas here, less than 30% of Christians believe that Jesus could come imminently before, like, for example, we're even done the service. That's shocking. And the imminent return of Jesus Christ is a core piece of the gospel message. Jesus is coming again, and that's the hopeful anticipation that's like the natural consequence of His resurrection. We need to be putting our faith and trust that He is coming again imminently, just as He said, just as He proclaimed that three days after His crucifixion, He would rise from the grave. These are closely connected. And It's important for us to recognize that if we don't hold this as imminent in our minds, our effectiveness as a witness in America will take necessary consequence. There is a a, a lacking of witness and power if we cease to believe that Jesus could occur, his, His coming could occur in our own lifetime. And so it's incredibly important for us Now, I want you to understand, though, that within contemporary evangelicalism, there is a a spectrum of interpretive views on how exactly Jesus is going to come back from from heaven. And I'm not here to defend this morning those views, but I want to say that there is room for some understanding of, of how this is going to play itself out. But the crucial ingredient in any of these alternate views is that Jesus is imminently coming back. There is nothing holding him from coming back. And it could happen at any moment without warning, because that's exactly what Jesus uh, shared with us. But I want us to understand that from this text, we can have a confidence of the progress and the sequencing of the events that are going to unfold when Jesus returns. Um, as I said, I'm not here to defend those alternate views, but there needs to be charity, certainly, for those who have, like the Bereans, studied the Scriptures. They've spent time thinking about it, and they still are convinced that Jesus is coming back imminently, even if they may be confused on some of the details. And so we have to have some charity there. But as I said, this text is the strongest proof for the pre-tribulational return, the rapture of Jesus Christ, and then the return. At the end of the tribulation. And I think we can find encouragement in these words this morning, and we can have reason for shining brightly in this world in the world around us. So what is Paul doing here? I've got to just review just a little bit. Paul is writing here. He's writing here about the end times because there were people who were afraid. They had believing loved ones who Who had passed away and they weren't sure exactly what was going to happen to them. They anticipated Jesus coming, yes, imminently. They didn't know quite when, but they felt like it was soon. And maybe that some felt like they had missed the rapture of the church and and maybe they were in the day of the Lord. And so some were concerned about what was happening. And so Paul is writing here to give distinction and clarify understanding. And so, I want us to understand, first of all, that there is a distinction here between the rapture and the return of Jesus Christ. And I, I think that it's clearer in this text than anywhere else, and I want you to follow along with me in your Scriptures as we look at these verses. In the first three verses, the distinction is, much, is very clear. First thing that we need to understand is that the rapture and the return Are linked ideas. They're linked in Paul's mind. They're they're connected. And so, in First Thessalonians chapter four, verse eighteen, look at what Paul said. He said, "Therefore, encourage one another with these words." He just talked about the rapture of the church. Now, when you go to chapter five, he talks about another concept. But then he connects it again. They're linked ideas. In verse 11, he repeats himself and said, therefore, encourage one another with these words. And so, this is a, a, a rhetorical way that Paul was communicating to let people know that these are linked ideas. But they're separate. They're separate concepts. And some people will look at these, these verses and say, and kind of, kind of bring them together into one. But Paul here, in Chapter 5, verse 1 uses a key word there, and I've highlighted it there on the wall. He says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brother. That little phrase, now concerning, is a signal that he's moving to a different topic. He's talking about something that's separate, but yet they're connected. And it's a new theme of a way of thinking here. And they are related, but they're different events. They're also sequential, they're sequential. So Paul is writing and he says, now concerning the times and the seasons, the times and the seasons, notice that the words are plural. And this is an indication that there are many different events and time periods that make up the end of the age. And so there is not just a a one end of the age, there are aspects to it leading up to return of Jesus Christ. So, for example, one of those time periods or that moments and seasons may be the rapture of the church, and then there is pre- the tribulational period, uh, a war at the end of that time period, and then the return of Jesus Christ. As a very simplification of some of those events that are, are, He is thinking of here. But notice also that it's imminent. And He says, now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. Why would he say it, and why would he talk about no need to have something written to you? Well, he's alluding to the fact that Jesus, when he was with his disciples after the resurrection in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 7, uh, the disciples were asking him, is this the time, is it right now, that you are going to set up your kingdom? And Jesus said to the disciples, he said, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Do you see the similarities in what, what Paul is saying and what Jesus said? He's saying here, you don't, it's not for you to know, it's in the Father's mind, and the timing of that is going to be imminent. It's not, it's not going to be set where we're all waiting for it in that sense. And so, it's imminent. It could happen at any moment, and then there's a quick succession of events that occur uh, leading up to. Uh, The second, uh, the other aspect here that you need to understand is that this time period that Paul is talking about between the rapture and the return is a shocking time period. And you see in red here, he says, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. The day of the Lord is, is shocking. It's, it's um, no one plans for a thief to come in the night. I mean, we have, maybe some of us take, you know, advanced planning, and we put an alarm system, and we, oh, this is America. Everyone carries. You know, there's, there's things that we do to prepare. But we don't know when it could happen. We don't know when it could happen. It may never happen in our lifetime, but it could happen in our lifetime, Right? But when the thief comes, it's going to be shocking. It's going to upset everything that has existed, what we might think of as a peaceful existence. And so it's coming, and it's a prelude here to the return of Jesus Christ. Now again, you have the rapture. There is no advance warning of the rapture. But when the When that happens, there will be a quick succession of events that will occur that will be unstoppable, just like a thief coming into your house. It upsets your world. It's not something you plan for. And so it will be shocking and it will be devastating. Verse 3 While people are saying there shall be peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. They will not escape the word destruction there, sudden destruction, speaks of devastation. It speaks of separation. It speaks of the wrath of God unfolding. And we might look at the word destruction and we might think of annihilation, like completely being wiped off. But Paul here is is not, he's using a unique word that doesn't speak so much of being completely wiped off as in like ceasing to exist, he's talking about a complete separation from God. I don't know how your Bible is set up, but my Bible has Second Thessalonians right across the page. Look at chapter 1, and there's a further kind of detail of what destruction Paul is talking about. He writes in a second letter to the same group of people, and he talks about destruction, and we get a little bit of insight into what he's talking about here. And so, I'm just going to pick up at verse 7. I know it's in the middle of a sentence, but bear with that. It says, And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will suffer punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. And He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints. And Paul is saying, when the Lord comes, there will be eternal destruction in a place that we call hell. That is the end result, but the time period leading up to the day of the Lord, there will be a sweeping away, and the wrath of God will start to be a precursor to the ultimate wrath of God that's going to fall upon the world through the lake of fire. It's devastating. It's devastating. And that's the end. That's the end result of where this is going. But it's important for us to understand that it is thorough, it is complete, it is overwhelming, this time period of wrath that's upon the world and the outcome. It says in this key little last phrase here, it says, they will not escape. They will not escape. And it's important for us to understand that this time of devastation, it says, it will come upon who? It'll come upon them. It will not come upon us. It will come upon them. Referring to unbelievers. And it will come like a thief in the night. It'll come like labor pains. It will be overwhelming. And they cannot escape, is what he's saying. It's like it's it's impossible once it happens. Now, ladies who have had babies, when the pains come, you can't escape it, right? You're going to have a baby at the outcome. Lord willing, there's going to be a baby. There will be a baby either way. Hopefully a healthy baby, but it's going to be the pain that's going through, you can't escape it. And that's the implication of what Paul is saying here. It's going to be completely overwhelming and sweeping the unbelievers into separation from God for all of eternity. That is the time period of the day of the Lord and the the signs that are taking place within it. Sometimes we talk about, people talk about, well, these are the signs of the times. Well, sometimes we've heard that. There will be no signs I want to say this twice. There will be no signs for the rapture of the church. But in the time period of the tribulation, there will be some visible signs that will be happening and occurring during that time period. And I have to step outside of this text to kind of fill us in on some of those signs. And I'm not going to go through all the signs because we could have a whole prophecy conference right here this morning. We couldn't possibly do all of that, but I want us to see some of the signs, and I'm just going to give you five of them uh, this morning very quickly. And the first is, is that when the rapture of the church occurs, there is going to come an Elijah-like forerunner. Now, you might think to yourself, wait a second, didn't we already see an Elijah-like prefigure to the Messiah? Yes, his name was John the Baptist. But you have to understand that when the prophets were writing in the Old Testament, they were speaking to a a near audience and also a far audience. They were speaking to people who were concerned with events that were occurring in their world. They were preaching, if you will, to the Jews that were living in Jerusalem who were anticipating the wrath of God falling on Jerusalem but as they spoke, they didn't even understand what they were saying. They were actually speaking to a far audience that they were outside of the generations to which they lived. They were speaking into the generations of our day, and maybe even a future day. And so some of the signs have double fulfillment. There's a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. And when the great day of the Lord occurs, we understand from the book of Malachi that there will be a prophet like Elijah, like John the Baptist, who will come and call the world to repentance. If you will, he's kind of like a Billy Graham, like calling the world to repentance. And so, there is, after the rapture of the church, there will be an opportunity given to the world to repent. God is a merciful God. In the midst of His, have to apply His wrath, He still gives opportunity To people to repent. But in spite of that, there will be a worldwide rebellion against God. And if you still have your Bibles turned there in our text, you can look over, you can look here on the wall, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. And Paul, writing a second time, says, let no man deceive you in any way. For that day, and he's referring to the day of the Lord, will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And this is an apostasy. It is a worldwide movement to away from God that's purposeful. There is, in our day, of course, a lot of near-fulfillments. I mean, there are denominations that hold the name Christian in their name who have apostatized and they have abandoned the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those are little things that have Like they're like near fulfillments, but there is a far fulfillment in which there will be a wholesale worldwide run away from God, in front of the expressed truth that the prophet will be bringing, the one like Elijah, and there will be a glad participation. Number three, there will be a revelation of the Antichrist. Second Thessalonians 2, again, in that same text, the, the line moves. And so, unless the rebellion comes first, and then the man of lawlessness is revealed. He's also called the son of destruction. And this apostasy is going to climax in the person who is called the man of lawlessness. In another scripture text, he's called the Antichrist. And so, there have been, in our even in our last century, near fulfillments of this. In fact, there are a lot of people who have looked to the last wars and the rise of leaders like Hitler and Stalin as being the kind of people that maybe even prefigure. In fact, reading through the book of Daniel, there was express uh, predictions uh, during the Greek Empire of a man coming and sitting in the temple and slaughtering a pig and doing sacrifice on the altar of the temple. And it came to pass, his name was uh, Antiochus Epiphanes. There have been through history little prefigures of this. But all of these are going to pale. And during that time period, there is going to be a central figure who is going to be asking for all the glory of the world to rest in him in contradiction to God who is king of kings and lord of lords. And that is still to come. He could be even living today. We don't know. It could certainly be momentarily. We also have worldwide, worldwide wars, plagues, devastations, and death that will take place during this time period. Revelation 6, 1 through 7, take time to read it on your own, but John in that time period, um, John, when he was on Patmos, received revelation from the Lord And as he was seeing visions, he saw a vision of four horses, and there was several shades of color. There was a a black horse, a red horse, a white horse, and a pale horse. And and all of those horses represented, um, there was representation of death and disease and war. And we've seen a lot of those near fulfillments, even as I said, in the last century. Even President Truman, who was the one who authorized the atomic bomb. He wrote this in his private diary the day the general military order was issued. And he said this, "'We have discovered the most terrible bomb in the history of the world. It may be the fire of destruction prophesied in the Bible.'" You know, we know the statistics, perhaps, of the Second World War and the famines that we have seen in Ethiopia and Somalia, and we've seen all of these things, but the plagues that are going to come and the war that will come during that time period will be so significant it will outstrip anything we have already seen. Just to put this into perspective, the Scriptures in the book of Revelation say that the population of the planet will drop by 30 percent. World War II, which to date has been the most devastating war, has only seen a surface population drop of two to three percent. In other words, before Christ returns, there's going to be a time of trouble so devastating upon this earth, we have next to nothing to even compare it with. The nations will assemble at the end of the age, at the end of that time period. And the book of Joel talks about this as uh, the Valley of Decision. That was the name it was uh, called in his day. In the book of Revelation, it's renamed the, Battle of the, the Valley of Armageddon. It's a region in Israel, even today in the, in the mid to north section of the country, And there have been a lot of battles that have occurred historically through the ages in Israel's history. And these have all been like near fulfillments. But there is coming a day when all the nations of the world will come and sit at Israel's doorstep. And at that moment, that's a major signal that at any moment there is going to be Christ coming back. There will be dramatic visual signs in the heavens in those days as well. And this is the last one. The heavens are going to contort. They're going to heave in ways that we have not known before. Joel 2, 30 through 33, 31 says, God will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, there have been blood moons that we have seen and heard probably. some of us, Some, of, some people have talked with me about I think it was last year, about some blood moons that were occurring, and I think Mr. Hagee was talking about some of those. But the kind of blood moon that this is talking about is nothing to which we have ever seen. The sun itself will be complete, it will be dimmed, it will lose its energy, and it will create something significant in the heavens that we will not, we can't hardly even consider even today. You know, there have been earthquakes, there's been tsunamis, but there's going to be a time period here that will have complete destruction that will be occurring leading up to Christ's return. It's a lot to take in. It's a lot to take in. But I say all of this to just to say we ought not become completely frightened and terrified. If you are a child of the day you will be safe. Paul says this, and I think it's important for us to see it. Look at verse 4 of chapter 5. He says, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them. Drop down to verse 4. Then he says, but you speaking of another group here, are not in the darkness, brothers, that that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. Unbelievers who live in a world of darkness will be caught because they're not of the light. And the day is not going to surprise you in two ways. First, You won't be deceived, and furthermore, you won't be around for it because the rapture of the church will come in advance of this time period. There's nothing there for you to worry about, and in all of the near fulfillments in in the lead up to that great and terrible day, you don't have to worry. You can have your eyes open, and you can see some of the things that are occurring in your world. You can see all of these things, and there's no need for you to worry. For he who cares for you will come and collect you and take you to be with him where he is. And so, in this text, uh, Paul is contrasting. And it's, I think, helpful for us to see here. I've I've projected two different groups of people that he's talking about here. And so, let me just… He's he's talking about the children of the day and then of the children of the night. And what does he do there? And he, he, he's, he's, he's putting them in parallel columns. There are two kinds of people here. Either you have the children of the light, or you are a child of the night. And so just as there is a difference between light and darkness, being awake and asleep, sober and drunk, there is a distinction there. You know, a person who is under the influence of alcohol in many ways, it's like a person who is asleep. They're not really fully aware of what's going on. In fact, I have I have driven at night, not under the influence of alcohol, but under the influence of sleep deprivation. And I felt like I was between two worlds. I felt like I couldn't really kind of see where I was going. And that's the idea here, is that prior to conversion, a person who is in spiritual darkness is going along thinking that life is okay, and he knows something about God, but you know, he's kind of, he's kind of not really honoring Him. Instead, he kind of fights with what he knows to be true, and he kind of, he kind of moves between, you know, he kind of does some things that are good, and but he, also, he also has patience for sin and darkness. He's hostile against God in reality. He's living a life of darkness. And the Scriptures describe this person in the book of Romans as, as maybe not doing all the things that he could possibly do that are evil, but he gives passes to everyone else who is doing evil. In fact, he even agrees heartily with them that they have the ability to do those things if they so choose. And we live in a very dark world where people are so conflicted over, you know, identity and, and, and sexual preferences. And, you know, we, we live in a culture that's very dark and is confused. It's because they don't have the light of God within them to give clarity. But when a person embraces God as Lord and Savior, the light switches on, and the Holy Spirit indwells the person. And they're, for the first time in their life, when they become a believer, they're able to fully assess the world around them as God sees it. It's like the light is really on, and they're able to distinguish between light and darkness. I mean, you think about Paul of Tarshish. He is the prime example of this. Paul thought he was obeying Christ, or excuse me, obeying God by persecuting the followers of Christ. He thought for sure he was on the right road, But until the light struck him and he fully saw Jesus as who he was, he was lost. He was in darkness. And suddenly, as he saw Jesus as the Son of God, everything changed. And it's possible to be completely deceived. Really important for us to see this. Think about Judas. Judas was with the light. He thought he was a part of the light but he was not. He was completely deceived. And so what Paul is saying here by way of encouragement is that you won't be lifted out, you will not be deceived. But it's actually important for you to understand that while you are in this world waiting for the Lord to return, there are two ways to live. So in verse 6 he says, So then, let us not sleep as others do. We are to live as people of the lights." Verse 8 but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and a helmet of hope for salvation. We have to live today as we hope to one day be, because Christ has redeemed us and set us free. We do not walk in darkness. And what Paul is saying here is that there is no room, there is no place for nightlife For people of the day. We don't walk along as if Christ isn't returning. We live as He is indeed going to come. And so, we don't sleep as others do. We belong to the day. I'm going to move past a text of Scripture here, but to keep us in this text, help us understand that we who have Christ have to put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for how, a helmet of salvation, the hope of eternal life. When Christ opens our eyes and we believe the gospel, we have all that we need to live for Him. We have the power of God to live for Him, but we have the tools of God to really live for Him. When we sin, And the darkness comes in, and we do sin. We do live in a body of flesh. We live between two worlds. We know what we want to do, but sometimes we don't do what we want to do. And when that happens, we need to apply the truths of what Jesus did to us for us again. We believe, we have faith that Jesus has forgiven all of our sin. We need to go back to the cross and believe that, continue to hope in the salvation that He offers, and then be released from sin, and follow Him in light. This morning, too, I just want us to see very quickly here that there are two destinies that's being given to us in this text. Look at verse 9. He says, "'For God has not destined us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ.'" God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is two destinies. There is heaven, and there is hell. And there are two places. See, Jesus took our wrath so that we have nothing to fear. If we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we have nothing to fear at all but it's going to change how we live. It's going to change us and move us towards light. You know, people who live in this world have a deception that is very real. They can't really see and understand what's happening. And I want to just illustrate this thought for us this morning. My my mother shared with me a very sad story of an elderly deacon at their church on the little island that they live on. She, at his end of life, was a caregiver for him. And the deception in life is very real. He, as an elderly deacon in that church, had gotten sucked into the sweepstakes. And as the sweepstakes came to his mailbox, He was overcome with the thought that I actually won this thing. In fact, as a deacon in that small church, he had the authority to open a bank account in the name of the church so that when the checks came, he could put them in. He would wait for the two o'clock ferry to come in, believing that he had won and that on the two o'clock ferry they would be coming with the check, and the big van and all the camera crew would be there for him, and he would walk from his seat and go up to the window and look out the window looking for that check to come. In fact, he became very agitated when people would tell him that that's not really what was going to happen. In fact, he he passed away believing that it was still coming. (laughs) Now, you might look at that and say, well, how could it possibly be that someone could actually fall into that kind of deception? There's just been a survey taken here in America that over 50% of the population, that st- over 50% of the population at one time or another has put confidence in those sweepstakes and turned them in. Now, that's 50% of the people in this room. That's like, I've done it. Guess what? I've done it. I've sent something in thinking that I would, and I guess it never came to pass. But there are so many false prophets out there who are teaching even in what, under the name of Christianity, who are saying, look, love wins. There is death, yes, but there will be opportunity after death to be reclaimed into the kingdom of God. There are people under the name of Christ who are blaspheming the name of Christ by telling falsehoods to the people of God. There are whole denominations that set up the opportunity for restoration and repentance through a purgatorial system. It It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. See, false teaching is only going to grow and get worse as the day approaches. And when the rapture occurs, there will be a gospel witness, but there will be a strong delusion, there will be a strong pressure against the truth. I think it's important for us to really take into hand very seriously and carefully the truth of the rapture of the church. Do we believe that Jesus could imminently return within our day? If you do, you're going to look at the whole world totally differently. It will change you from the inside out. It will Light will start to flow out of you. You will not do the kinds of things that you used to do. You will become more faithful to the people of God. You will become increasingly captured by the Word of God. The love of God will flow through you and change you. So it's really important for us as believers to put a renewed focus. We can't let the Muslim world outstrip us in anticipation for the Lord Jesus Christ to return. That's shocking. But if we embrace the reality of His return, how that ought to change us and make us influential in this world. And so, Paul summarizes this this section, and he concludes by saying, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up. And In other texts of Scripture, we are commanded to to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as you see the day approaching. Engage in the purpose of building one another up. Let's pray.